Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Good Friday. I'm so glad that you've made it out tonight. I think this is one of the best worship services of the year. It's a time of great focus. It's a time of great emotion. And it prepares our hearts for Easter Sunday in a way that nothing else does as far as I'm concerned. We're going to have you sit most of the evening, but just for a moment, would you stand to your feet? We're going to praise the name of the Lord Jesus. We're going to take a moment to open our hearts to him and what he might want to share with us tonight. You might know the Good Friday story backwards and forwards. It's still good to be here and open your heart. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, your son. We come before you tonight in a spirit of anticipation. We come to bear witness to your sacrifice, but also witness to our faith that Sunday is coming and right quickly. So even, Lord, as we give attention to your sacrifice, to your crucifixion, to the reasons why you found yourself on that cross, we hail you tonight as the risen king. We observe you as lion, but we praise you as lamb. We recognize that you're both, Lord. Be with us this Good Friday. Speak to us through the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
Yusin. Yerilkom dikursana, açısı bilkom avedra şakka. Rıçakaya diye, baraba. Many of you recognize that scene, you know, even without the subtitles. The story tells itself. You know, on one side we have Jesus of Nazareth, falsely accused, unjustly beaten, his sinless life hanging in the balance. And in the middle we have Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect of Judea, trying to keep an imperfect peace amidst the constant threat of revolt and bloodshed. And on the other side, a scoundrel, a violent criminal, a murderer who has echoed throughout history as a warning. Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. But what of Jesus, who they call the Christ? Let him be crucified. But I find no fault in him. Let his blood be on our hands. Who was this Barabbas? How did he become a symbol of unpunished sin, going free as the innocent Christ became a lamb to the slaughter? His story is recounted in all four Gospels, and Matthew simply refers to him as notorious. But Mark and Luke reveal a deeper backstory. Barabbas wasn't just a, a common criminal. He was a political prisoner, an insurrectionist who wanted to overthrow the tyranny of Roman occupation in Israel. But for, but, but for a moment, just consider the world in which Barabbas was born. Now, unlike the, the rabid animal in the film and our Sunday school memories, it's likely Barabbas was more like us than we'd care to admit. Now remember, it had been a thousand years since the reign of King David. 
In the centuries that followed, Israel had been conquered and plundered by the Philistines, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians. God's chosen people had been carted off to foreign lands and made slaves. Now, the Old Testament stories of Ezra and Nehemiah tell of faithful Jewish leaders striving to lead their people back to reestablish their presence in the promised land. But the bloodshed wouldn't stop once they were home. In the last 400 years, before Jesus' birth, forces from Greece under the command of Alexander the Great wrought destruction. Armies from Macedonia and Egypt surrounded and tormented the Israelites. Now, the Jewish people were, were fierce warriors and in some cases emerged victorious against their oppressors, as in the Maccabean Revolt around 160 BC. But a new empire, unmatched in strength, arose from the north. It sought to bring order and civility to the world, even if it meant doing so at the end of a spear under the looming threat of a crucifixion. Rome. At the height of its power, the Roman Empire controlled most of Europe, North Africa, Western Asia, and parts of the Middle East. From Portugal to North Africa, from the south of England to Cairo, their banner reigned supreme. Rome was savvy in that it sought not just to conquer but to govern. They courted the local elites with offers of land and status. Even while imposing Roman law, they worked to integrate local traditions and customs, allowing local religions to continue so long as they paid their taxes and gave honor to the Roman emperor. This led to factions within the Jewish population. The infamous Pharisees saw themselves as separate and pure, keepers of the Torah and stewards of the law. Sadducees largely acquiesced to Roman leadership as it kept them in control of the temple. And the Herodians wanted to protect their wealth and economic status. Essenes withdrew to the wilderness to await the coming Messiah. And then there were the Zealots. The Zealots could best be described as revolutionaries. Nationalists who sought to overthrow Rome with insurrection and violence. It is widely believed that Barabbas was among their ranks. Whatever crimes he committed, he committed in the cause of freeing Israel from Roman rule. Mark 15 calls him an imprisoned rebel who had committed murder as a part of an organized insurrection. He wasn't some street corner criminal. This kind of man, this violent zealot, this native son, was exactly why Rome had perfected crucifixion. The cruelest of capital punishments. Crucifixion wasn't just a single death. It was a warning to everyone. A horrifying public humiliation meant to sear and scar the memories of all who bore witness. Barabbas was about to become a cautionary tale, just a statistic in Rome's systematic and calculated takeover of the known world. In a way, like many of us, he was a victim of his circumstances. 
His world was deeply flawed and unjust. And he was doing right in his own eyes. He had taken matters into his own hands, and the resulting consequences were inescapable. He was trapped in a fallen world, condemned to die by his own sin. what 
Barabbas was thinking when he heard the cell door scrape open. Did his pulse quicken? Did a pit open in his stomach? He was no stranger to violence and death, but he hadn't yet been on the business end of the whip and spear. Did he weep or beg for mercy? Scripture doesn't record his mood or his actions as he emerged into the light of that Friday morning to confront the crowd and his fate. When he did make his way into the scene, I'd guess he was surprised to discover he was not the center of attention or controversy. Instead, he was to be a pawn in a political game. Jesus of Nazareth was also a native son of Israel. He was of royal blood, a rabbi and prophet, a healer and leader. He had amassed loyal followings sworn to follow and protect him. As his ministry and influence grew, it became clear to everyone that he was not just another revolutionary. There had been many prophets warning Israel to return to God. There had been miracles performed and military victories. There had been kings and leaders who'd accomplished great feats in Israel's history and the people longed to return to their former national glory. And they all had ideas as to how that was going to happen. The Pharisees wanted Israel to follow the rules and made up more rules on top of the rules they had already couldn't follow. Jesus made it simple and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They didn't like that. The Sadducees said there was no afterlife. They tried to dispute Jesus with trick questions, but he said, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He spoke with clarity and first-hand authority about heaven. They didn't like that. The Herodians wanted to keep their wealth and status, compromising and colluding with the Romans. Jesus said, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. They didn't like that. The zealots wanted to take up arms and overthrow the Roman oppressors, meet strength with strength, an eye for an eye, as the law said. Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. They didn't like that. Ironically, it was the Romans who didn't have a specific issue with Jesus. When Pharisees challenged him about Roman taxation, Jesus asked whose face was on the coin. Caesar's, they said. Jesus said, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They didn't mind that. <laughs> Jesus had bigger fish to fry. He wasn't concerned with Rome, a temporary kingdom of men. 
He was there to change the course of human history. He was there to conquer death. He was there to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth by refusing to conform to anyone's ideas about who he should be, Jesus had made enemies of the people he'd come to save. They wanted a divine reflection of themselves. They didn't want to hear from a God who didn't already agree with them. Most of us know how the story goes, the final week. The crowd shifts from a shout of, Hosanna, Lord, save us, to whispers of discontent. Jesus is betrayed and abandoned. The whispers of the crowd are stoked and whipped into a mob frenzy of crucify him. For Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Rome, he wanted to keep the peace. The gospels do not paint him as a cruel or even hostile to Jesus. If anything, he is a professional judiciary presence, attempting to stay above the hysteria of the accusers and the crowd trying to convince local leaders that Jesus had done nothing wrong. The Gospel of Matthew records a story about Pilate's wife having a dream about Jesus' innocence and encouraging her husband to defuse the situation. Pilate wanted to let him go, but he had to satiate the crowd. As it was Passover, he saw an opportunity to manipulate a broken solution. Remember, the Romans wanted a docile population, so they integrated with local customs. It had become a tradition that the authorities would release one prisoner to commemorate this Jewish holy day. He put his trust in the goodwill of the people and offered them the worst person he could imagine, Barabbas, the insurgent, the killer. One cannot help but wonder if he despaired as he realized how badly he had misjudged the crowd. See, Barabbas was one of them. His motives were relatable, even worthy of empathy. This Jesus, this God-man, he was something other. He could not be contained or explained. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Pilate had run out of options. Matthew 27, 24 says he saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Truth be told, none of them could have changed anything about what happened. The man in charge was the one being beaten, scourged and crucified. His authority would not be denied, not by Pilate, not by the crowd, and certainly not by Barabbas.
on uh, the outskirts of Chicago in a suburb called Melrose Park. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had my friend Joe that was speaking here. You might remember him. And he uh, grew up with him and kind of around his family a bit. And he had two older brothers. One of his brothers 
name was Vince, and one of his brothers' name was Vito. Uh, you don't have to guess their ethnicity. They were both growing up. It was interesting to watch Joe kind of in that tension of whether or not you emulate your brothers. Both of them were known for not being the best of guys, though, although Vince was a little better than Vito. Vito, at age 20, had already been in and out of prison a couple of times, and so already had a history. Kind of for them, they'd look at a Saturday night, a good Saturday night, there was always some kind of a fight that they would get into. And so one particular Saturday or weekend, they ended up at Denny's and a fight broke out in Denny's because isn't that what you do over a Grand Slam breakfast? But but either way, the fight kind of escalated and it wasn't a typical just pushing and talking. It actually escalated where Vince, the better of the two brothers, actually ended up sending one of the guy's heads through a cigarette vending machine. They used to make those. The guy, it didn't fare very well for him. He ended up in the ER, nearly lost his life. Pretty scary situation. Well, when the cop, before the cops arrived, everyone fled the scene. They got out of there. Well, later on, they were gathering some witnesses and kind of clarifying what had happened. And all of them could point to, well, it was definitely one of the Basil brothers. Definitely one of the Basil brothers. So they show up at my friend Joe's doorstep, the police, kind of questioning, and they show up, and Vito's the one that answers the door. So the police say to Vito, not realizing that he wasn't the one that committed the crime, said, hey, we have tons of evidence, lots of witnesses, all pointing to the fact that you are the one that attacked this guy. And in that moment, in that kind of crossroads, those split seconds where he's wrestling through, he had already seen the horror of prison, he came to the conclusion, I can't imagine my brother experiencing that. So he didn't say anything. He ended up taking on an attempted manslaughter charge that served the entire time in prison for that, literally taking the place of his brother. Kind of powerful story. It was interesting talking to Joe even this last week, kind of going back and summarizing the details. He still gets choked up for going through that, as you can imagine. There's something compelling, the idea of somebody else that's innocent taking the penalty for someone else's crime, right? Now, elevate that, as we've done here this evening, elevate that times in measurable amounts, the creator God one that spoke things into existence, the one that designed us, the one that sustains our life, the one that actually causes your heart to beat, he made the choice to take the place of Barabbas? We've talked about that already. Pull out those cards just for a second. Look at that audacious scene of the two of them standing before Pilate. Pilate, not knowing any better, thinks that he's the one determining the outcome of this situation. But there willingly, Jesus Christ, like a lamb headed to the slaughter, made the decision to carry the weight of this man's sin. But here's what the difference is in that story to now, or how it, how it ripples into our time together this evening is it wasn't just for Barabbas. I know I'm stating the obvious. We know this. In fact, Scripture just is splattered all over the pages of with this idea. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body 
on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This isn't just a story about Barabbas. That's not what we're talking about here this evening. It's someone, the God of the universe, taking our place instead of me, instead of you on that cross. This past week on Wednesday, we spent some time as a family. The first time my kids ever saw that movie, The Passion of the Christ, is pretty sobering just watching, uh, looking over and seeing tear-filled eyes and just allowing them to absorb the weight of what was happening there. My hope and the reason we gather on these evenings like this is to slow down enough, hit the pause button, and say, wait a second, that was for me. He bore my sins on the cross. He took the the whipping, the lashing, the, the cruel words, the spitting, the tearing out of his beard, all of that hanging on a cruel Roman cross for us, for me, instead of me. Anyone else thankful for that? Anyone else grateful for that? He bore the weight of my sin. He bore the weight of your sin. We thought it'd be appropriate this evening just to spend the remainder of our time in this kind of tradition or what God's put in place, the sacrament of communion. We're going to have time to come forward. And really, when you take that card, my hope is that you'd bring that forward and leave that as just a thank you, a thank you. Thank you for being instead of me. So we're going to have a time of just quiet, and we're have, I'm going to invite the volunteers up that are going to serve communion. We're going to go in a, into a time of communion where you get a chance to reflect. And remember, this is for those of us that call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. If you're new here or if you're investigating that, feel free to let this time pass. But otherwise, my hope is that you can engage in the moment and thank him for going in your place on that cruel cross. I'll be quiet. You can go ahead and come forward. You'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the grape juice and take the communion right here. If you're in the first three quarters of the room, you can come forward. The last quarter of the room, maybe go to the back. I was told that there's even a gluten-free option in the back. So there you go.
sing a couple songs together to close our time. Shine brighter than us so 
Jesus, we do thank you so, so much this evening. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. I can sense it in this room. There's just gratitude that's overwhelming. God, we're grateful for the sacrifice. We're grateful for all that that entailed, the taking on of all of our sins, all on your back, having your Father turn from your sight. We're so grateful, God. We praise you. We thank you. We so desperately want this evening to put the spotlight on you and what you've done for us. We love you and praise you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, you guys, for being here tonight. I want to invite you back to celebrate Easter, the better side of this story. Amen. God bless you. Have a great evening.